Okay, I think we will start um, our session for today. Welcome everyone. Um, welcome to the uh, to our webinar, Middle East Center webinar on the politics of migration in modern Egypt, strategies for regime and survival in trust autocracies. Um, we have a wonderful speaker, uh, Gerasimus Sukuras uh, from the University of Birmingham. And we have our uh, speaker from uh, American University of Cairo, Ibrahim Abad. Um, and I'm delighted to uh, have them both um, at our Middle East Center event today. Uh, thank you for uh, making the time and joining us. And thank you for everyone also joining us. Um, hopefully, um, we will uh, start in a minute now. Uh, but before that, I just would like to introduce you um, speakers and just take care of some of the housekeeping um, rules here, very basic things. Um, so um, we will uh, have one speaker, Gerasimus will present for about uh, 20, 25 minutes, and then Ibrahim will respond, and then we will move on to the Q&A section. session. Um, if you would like to ask a question, uh, please uh, type your question in the Q&A box, you will see at the bottom of the screen, and um, then we will then uh, address the questions to the speakers uh, and they will answer them. Uh, please also note that this event will be recorded and will also be live streamed on Facebook. If you would like to tweet about the event, you can use the hashtag at um, hashtag LSE Egypt or uh, hashtag LSE Middle East. Okay, so uh, Gerasimus uh, is a senior lecturer in, the, in Middle East politics at the University of Birmingham. He works on the politics of migrants, uh, refugees and diasporas in the Middle East and the broader global south. He has also written on the international dimension of authoritarianism. His, book, his first book, uh, The Politics of Migration uh, in Modern Egypt, Strategies for Regime Survival in Autocracies, uh, published by the Cambridge University Press in 2019, was awarded the 2020 NMISA Distinguished Book Award by the International Citizens Association. So congratulations for that, Gerasimus, it's amazing. Um, he has also published in International Studies Quarterly, International Migration Review, International Political Science Review, Journal of Ethnic and Migration Studies, and other leading journals. So we are very lucky to have him here today uh, speaking to us about his book. Uh, and um, he has also uh, held research fellowships at Harvard University and American University in Cairo. Um, probably Irvine and Gerasimus know each other from that time. Uh, so. Um, so we are very lucky, to, as I said, Gerasimus, to have you here, and I'm looking forward to hearing your uh, hearing your talk uh, and the discussion that will follow it. Um, our discussant, uh, Ibrahim Awad, is a professor of practice in global affairs, and he is the director uh, of the Center for Migration and Refugee Studies at the School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the American University in Cairo. He has worked for the League of Arab, Arab Studies, the United Nations and the International Labour Organization, holding positions of Secretary of the Commission, UNS Squad, Director, um, ILO Sub-Regional Office for North Africa, and Director of the ILO International Migration Program. So it's so, Michael, how, when did you do all this amazing, uh, amazing uh, experience uh, in this field? Um, and he is currently uh, the chair of the Global Knowledge Partnership on Migration and Development. Uh, 
uh, which is hosted by the World Bank. Uh, and he's also the chair of the steering committee of the Euro-Mediterranean Research Network on International Migration and senior fellow of the Migration Policy Center of the Graduate Stud Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva. So you are a very busy man. Thank you so much for making time uh, for our event today, Ibrahim. And I look forward to uh, your comments uh, later on. So before, uh, I think I've covered everything about the housekeeping, as I said, Q&A boxes at the bottom. Uh, I will now pass it on to Gerasimos to um, give us his talk. Uh, and then we will take it from there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Zainab. Um, thank you, Dr. Ibrahim, for um, joining us. It's, it's an honor to have you. Uh, and thank you, of course, to all the attendees uh, who found uh, time to come at a particularly uh, interesting uh, political moment in uh, global politics. So I'm, I'm really happy to see you all here. Um, let's, uh, hopefully you can see my shared screen. Uh, so the book uh, that I'm presenting to you today is called The Politics of Migration in Modern Egypt, Strategies for Regime Survival in Autocracies. And what I, I try to do there is to discuss how uh, authoritarian regimes might use labor migration in particular in order to promote their stay in power uh, in the Middle East and the broader global south with particular emphasis on Egypt. Uh, and the cover photo uh, is uh, taken in a particular turbulent time, this is Egyptian migrants uh, fleeing violence uh, of the Libyan civil war, and this is at the border between Libya and Tunisia. Uh, only one of the instances, I argue, in the book of uh, Egyptian migrants being uh, instrumentalized for political power uh, and power games purposes across North Africa and the wider Middle East. I don't want to spend too much time talking about Egypt itself. Uh, of course, it's um, geostrategically, historically, culturally, socioeconomically important in terms of the Middle East and the broader Mediterranean. It is also a, a wonderful case study for us interested in migration. Um, if you look at the right-hand side, you'll see that Egypt has over four and a half million registered um, migrants working across the Middle East, or, or temporary workers, as uh, the, the state calls them. And at the same time, Egypt boasts over 1.5 million uh, permanent migrants, or uh, Egyptians living in uh, the global north, across Europe and North America. So it gives us a very, very interesting um, leeway into understanding how uh, such a, a phenomenon so large as labor migration in Egypt may feature in the politics of uh, successive Egyptian regimes. In terms of the methodology I use very, very briefly, and I'm happy to talk about this in the q and I look at two case studies uh, for theory development, namely um, Egyptian migration policy under Gamal Abdel Nasser in the 1950s to 1970, and then uh, under Sadat and Mubarak in the 1970-2011 era. And I argue these are most different uh, cases, given that the former under Nasser takes place within a very restrictive labor migration framework, and the latter, after 1970, is involved in the process of the infitah and the opening up of the Egyptian economy, where we have a particularly permissive labor migration policy. Um, the way I, I went about my research is I engaged approximately 11 months of work in Cairo, in uh, Agusa, uh, and I went through the archives of three main Egyptian newspapers, 
Alaham Al-Akhbar and Al-Gumkhoriya. And I went through and I created uh, a, a quite sizable data set of everything that has been published on migration uh, in the daily press in Egypt, trying essentially to overcome the problem of lack of data that we have when we try to understand migration and refugee politics in the broader Middle East. I triangulated that with archival work in the Ministry of Education in Cairo and also in London at the National Archives. And at the same time, I conducted a number of interviews, uh, both expert and elite interviews, including uh, a number of um, interviews with key uh, elites, such as um, former prime ministers, current and former ministers of migration, uh, and so on. So this is how I went about the research for this book back in the day. Um, what I'll do for the next um, 16, 17 minutes is go through uh, indicatively the two case studies and I'll talk a bit about how these two regimes, the Nasserite regime and the Sadat Mubarak regime, try to use migration politically uh, and discuss how successful they were. Um, first off, Gamal Abdel Nasser, this is um, him being Time Magazine's Person of the Year uh, in, a, in a wonderfully Orientalist um, cover. Uh, of Time Magazine at the time. Uh, what's interesting here is that Gamal Abdel Nasser approaches migration as a uh, primarily security issue. He restricts uh, the, uh, the exit of Egyptians via a number of means, um, exit visas, work authorization permits, um, proof of return flights. So if you wanted to travel abroad, you needed to, to, to show the regime that you had uh, the means to do this and all the means home as well. We have all sorts of um, structural obstacles being put into place preventing Egyptians from migrating. And this has, of course, both economic and sociopolitical, um, uh, a sociopolitical rationale behind it. Uh, what is interesting here is that uh, there is an exception to this broader rule of restricting migration in the times of Nasser, uh, namely the use of high-skilled professional uh, Egyptians being sent abroad on specific countries targeted by the regime between 1952 and 1970. And the way to understand this, um, I tend to go back to what Mohammed Hassanin Haikal would say um, in the sense that Egypt uh, revolutionary bound traffic by the territorial limits of the state. And it, he mirrored a number of elites at the day by arguing that we should be differentiating between Egypt as a state and Egypt as a revolution. And this is where it becomes quite interesting for uh, us scholars of migration, where we see uh, the Nasserite regime coming in and promoting the export of a number of professional groups, primarily teachers. Uh, so my research, as I talked uh, in the, the Ministry of Education and elsewhere, uncovered these statistics and a number of data that has to do with how uh, the regime was sending specific groups of teachers to specific Arab states over time. And this has um, a lot to do, of course, with an earlier policy that the Egyptian state traditionally developed um, throughout the 19th and 20th century of helping uh, the development of other Arab states. Um, one thing that we could remember is that the Egyptian state was called, or Egypt was called al-Shakika al al-Kubra, the, the big sister of the Arab world, primarily because of its emphasis on helping its neighbors. Uh, also by the export of lawyers, uh, teachers of Arabic, uh, scholars of all sorts. When Nasser comes in, in 1950, um, 
1952-1954, what we have is an expansion, a systematization, and a politicization of this form of regional migration. So over time, the number of Egyptian teachers being sent abroad multiplies exponentially, and we have almost 5,000 officially, uh, 5,000 teachers officially being sent abroad in the early 1960s. I go through a lot of the politics of this in the book, but I, I only want to focus on one thing that has to do with how Egyptian migrants featured in the foreign policy of the Nasserite state. Um, and in particular, how the Nasserite state was trying to employ these teachers abroad to export messages of revolution, to incite uh, pro-Nasser uh, socialist revolutions in other parts of the Arab world. And one of the particularly interesting cases here is Yemen. Yemen, of course, um, going through um, one uh, a civil war at the time and many more followed, unfortunately. Uh, at the time of Nasser, uh, the Egyptian teachers sent there were instrumental in disseminating political propaganda for, on behalf of the Egyptian state. These are um, uh, leaflets intercepted by the British in 1959, distributed by Egyptian teachers in Yemen. And they, they go on for quite a while and they, they have very wonderful things to say about how the people of Yemen should not be clapping for Gamal Abdel Nasser. Remember, this is after the Suez crisis, uh, Nasser has risen in popularity. Uh, what it says uh, in this uh, leaflet is, well, Nasser doesn't need your applause. He doesn't want your admiration. What you should be doing is you should be uniting together, organizing yourselves, eliminating the monarchy, and so on. So you can see just one example of how Egyptians abroad are very implicated in the foreign policy priorities of the Egyptian state at the time. And of course, beyond this, we're talking about uh, engineers, we're talking about builders, we're talking about an army, quote unquote, of um, Egyptian professionals sent abroad for these purposes. One of the, uh, this photo is from uh, Sana'a still in Yemen. Uh, the first girls school uh, was built there by Egyptian engineers being brought from Cairo and also staffed exclusively by Egyptian teachers. And of course you can see all this sort of um, interplay between education, migration, and the battle for the hearts and minds of the Arab world at that particular moment in time. For a number of reasons, uh, this ends in the early 1970s, and of course, it formally ends once uh, Anwar Sadat takes hold of the um, of political power in Egypt and um, redesigns its foreign policy to uh, match uh, Western priorities in the region. What is interesting here is that within the whole process of Anwar Sadat's opening the economy, uh, what he also perceived as important is to allow Egyptian um, uh, citizens of all sorts to freely emigrate abroad. So we have a deregulation of migration and we have the abandonment of all these control mechanisms that Nasser had carefully put in place. When asked about it, um, Anwar Sadat was um, careful to highlight questions of freedom, questions of liberty, of course highlighting the, the new regime's also newfound policy of liberalization uh, and opening up. At the same time, what is really interesting is that Sadat also used this as a means of differentiating himself from Nasser, as a means, uh, I argue in the book, of, of his policy of denasserization. 
of establishing himself not as the successor of Nasser and somebody that follows in his step, his steps, but as somebody uh, that is now his. Um, it's it's a new leader that comes in to take Egypt forward. And one of the quotes that I use in the book that I find particularly interesting is this, where he says, "Well, back under Nasser, every Egyptian teacher was thought to have been a spy, a saboteur." coming to overthrow the standing rule, distribute literature, as we saw a few slides ago. Um, but we're no longer interested in this. In fact, give and take is the motto of the Egyptian for the day. This is the mid-1970s. And those of us familiar with Egyptian politics at the time can hopefully see the extent to which this uh, economistic argument fits into the mindset of the um, Egyptian state at the time of uh, Sadat. Of course, what's most famous about Egypt when it comes to migration is the importance that it holds for the Egyptian political economy. Um, this is data from the uh, Central Bank in, uh, in Egypt. On the left, I've calculated personal remittances. So this is money being sent back to Egypt by Egyptian migrants abroad uh, as a percentage of the Egyptian state GDP. And you'll see that at some point, they go all the way up to, this is the uh, early 1990s, they go to some 14% of state GDP of Egypt. And if you're a bit familiar with Egyptian economy, you'll know that this is a tremendously uh, large uh, number. Uh, so it is economically important. If we look on the right-hand side, this is um, uh, remittances disaggregated by host country. On the dark side, uh, we have remittances sent from migrants in the Arab world. On the lighter gray side, remittances from those in the West. So you can see, the extent to which migration to countries like Libya, Jordan, and the Gulf become economically important for the survival and the continuation of the Egyptian state. So there is a distinct argument here about the economic uh, basis of um, the durability of the Egyptian regime under Sadat and Mubarak. What is also interesting here, and what I've tried to uncover in the book uh, quite um, extensively, is how this sort of migration also aimed to foster personalistic ties of friendship between various rulers of the Arab world. Top up among them, the elites or the, the rulers of oil producing countries. Um, the photo on the right, the, uh, the drawing on the right is from Al-Gomhoreya. It's Anwar Sadat, of course, embracing King Faisal of Saudi Arabia. Um, uh, to the chagrin of, of the Zionists uh, looking uh, annoyed at the back. Uh, and of course, Anwar Sadat uses migration as another instrument of bringing the country closer to what he sees is the new uh, center of power in the Middle East, namely the oil-producing countries of the Gulf. So we have all sorts of interview quotes, all sorts of data pointing to Egyptian to the Egyptian regime's wish to provide Arab countries with labor, with manpower, uh, and to use that as a way to amend the ties that had been uh, quite strained under his predecessor, under Gamal Abdel Nasser. Uh, and of course, the host states of the Arab world uh, gladly complied. So you have the last quote of this slide by none other than Saddam Hussein of, of Iraq that said in 1975 that, well, of course, yes, we in Iraq, we want to uh, help giant and generous Egypt. Our doors are open to Egyptian farmers, workers, intellectuals. So you see the extent to which these ties between sending, migrant sending and migrant receiving states 
matter uh, quite a lot in terms of the continuation of these personalistic ties. Over time, uh, I talk in the book about how labor migration actually becomes part of the socioeconomic expectations and socioeconomic reality of Egyptians, um, of, of, the, uh, of, of, of Egyptian citizens. Uh, and in fact, even today, uh, younger generations of Egyptians do uh, dream and hope that they will be able to migrate uh, and spend at least a few years in Dubai, in uh, the Gulf or somewhere else. Uh, one way to, 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 uh, to make this obvious is, is this um, uh, cartoon from Al-Ahram al the economic weekly in, in Cairo, where you have this image of, uh, of a man looking at these birds, the migratory birds, of course, symbolizing Egyptians, that say, well, um, on your father's life, uh, when you arrive safely, please send me an employment contract so I can also leave this country. Uh, and I promise you it sounds a bit funnier in, in Arabic. Uh, but this, this shows you the extent to which um, the Egyptian population at large uh, responded to the opening up of migration and sees this as part of their uh, economic uh, and uh, political realities. The problem for us, looking at this from a political science perspective, a problem within quotes, is the extent to which these uh, strong ties of labor migration mo mobility also produces a degree of dependence. Um, and part of the issue here has to do with how the Egyptian regime over time has faced a number of uh, attempts at destabilization by specific host state regimes. Um, chief among them, of course, uh, Libya under Gaddafi. Gaddafi uh, once relations soured with Cairo from the mid 1970s onwards, was uh, repeatedly targeting the, the, the welfare of Egyptian migrants in Libya in order to deal successive blows to the regime of uh, Sadat, uh, first and foremost, and less so uh, Hosni Mubarak. So we have successive waves of harassment, imprisonment, deportation of thousands of Egyptians living and working in Libya that were deported or um, unceremoniously dropped off at the, the border, the desertous border between Libya and Egypt, whenever the relations between uh, Gaddafi and Sadat uh, soured. Uh, and of course, the power play connotations here mean that um, the Egyptian regime itself was trying to save face here and look at this not as the major humanitarian uh, problem that it was. So Der Spiegel, the, the German magazine, went to Egypt in 1976 and actually asked uh, Sadat about this. Well, they said, what are you doing? Uh, Gaddafi is, is deporting some 20,000 workers. Well, um, and Sadat said, well, we really don't take this situation so seriously. We'll, we'll absorb our workers here. If they can't find work here, we'll send them to another Arab country. So you can see the, the nonchalant, I would argue, um, nature with which the, the Egyptian regime tries to sort of um, shrug off any, any problems here. And I argue that this is uniquely politically motivated. Um, this continues on for a number of years, unfortunately, way past um, the life of Anwar Sadat. Under Mubarak, uh, this happens uh, in, during Operation Desert Storm. And of course, once uh, Hosni Mubarak sides with the Americans in terms of the attempt to uh, 
the, um, the, the desert war in response to Iraqi, Iraq's invasion of Kuwait, what we have is distinct repercussions for the uh, hundreds of thousands of um, Egyptian workers uh, living in Iraq. Uh, so we have quotes from the New York Times and elsewhere where they tell us uh, how um, harrowing stories of rape, theft, torture uh, by Iraqi soldiers. So if you remember a few slides ago, Saddam Hussein was waxing lyrical about the friendship between Egypt and um, Iraq. You see by 1990, once relations soured, the people that suffered arguably were the um, ordinary Egyptian workers. And you'll see that very brutally in that statistical note on the right. In 1990, some 44% of all Egyptians were working in Iraq. By 1993, only 7% of those working abroad were actually still uh, there. Uh, two more slides for me, uh, taking things a bit forward in time. Uh, and these are things that I speak about in the book in the conclusion, because I formally end in 2011. But of course, the interplay between Egyptian migration and politics uh, does not end with the Arab uprisings. And in fact, uh, once Morsi comes into power and the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood uh, comes in, Egyptian migrants abroad also fear, um, also have to suffer uh, from a number of uh, regimes, most notably uh, Jordan, I highlight in uh, the book, and Libya. Both of these countries, um, structurally weaker than Egypt, I argue economically, militarily, politically even, uh, are able to use the um, Egyptian state's reliance on remittances to force Morsi's hand in, in a varied uh, number of policies. So we have Jordan, uh, coercing Egypt into increasing its exports of natural gas by threatening to deport Egyptian migrant laborers in 2012, followed by Libya doing something very similar in order to force the extradition of Gaddafi-era Libyan elites that had sought shelter in uh, Cairo. So you see the extent to which migration uh, functions as an, an instrument of coercion in which I argue weaker states like Libya at the time, remember this is Libya undergoing a civil war itself, uh, is able to uh, force the hand of one of the strongest countries in the Middle East, namely uh, Egypt. Where are we now in terms of migration and uh, authoritarian politics in uh, Egypt? With the return of the military to power, uh, things do not change uh, massively, I argue, in terms of the politics of Egyptian migration. Um, the book ends on a uh, rather pessimistic note, I think, and I'm happy to discuss this with you all. Uh, and this can be encapsulated in these two sets of statistics. The top table looks at the uh, Arab share in terms of migrant populations in the Gulf, uh, in Gulf Cooperation Council states. And you'll see that these, um, the number of Arabs being um, recruited by host states across the Gulf is decreasing uh, steadily over time. In fact, the Gulf countries are engaging either in heavy recruitment of Asian rather than Arab labor. And of course, the, uh, the Gulf countries themselves are going through a very interesting process of nationalization of their own uh, labor markets. So you see that there is less and less appetite for Egyptian migrant workers in key host states traditionally, such as Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates. 
This is one fact. The second fact is that uh, while uh, Egyptian demand for Egyptian labor abroad is uh, decreasing, Egyptian, the numbers of Egyptian labor, laborers themselves is arguably increasing. So if you look at the Egyptian uh, population growth figures from 1970s up until today, you'll see that um, we have an exponential increase of um, the numbers of Egyptians living in Egypt annually. And I believe the number now is well over 100 million. So what we have here is, is a very interesting uh, dichotomy between the inability of uh, most of these Egyptians to move abroad, to pursue uh, employment opportunities elsewhere, despite this tradition of, of moving abroad to secure uh, enough finances, and at the same time, a specifically uh, problematic youth bulge, as we would say in the literature, about what Egypt is, is undergoing at the moment. So at some point, these two forces, uh, I argue in the book, are bound to create a, a unique set of, of problems for whoever is in power in Egypt. And arguably, this is something that the Egyptian military regime, if Sisi continues to be in power, will have to somehow uh, grapple with uh, one way or another. Um, so this is, this is broadly where um, the book stands. Uh, thank you very much for your attention. I'll, I'll give the floor over to, to Dr. Ibrahim for um, any comments and any thoughts as well. Thank you, Gerasimus. Over to you, Ibrahim. Thank you very much, Zainab. Thank you very much for inviting me for this webinar. And thanks very much to Dr. Gerasimus for, for a brilliant presentation, as brilliant as, as the book. We have discussed the book before, and we agree on many things. We have some issues that we discuss continuously. So, in fact, I will not, I will not comment on, on, on the book. This probably will be the object of questions that will be raised by the audience. What I thought I would do is, in fact, has already been done by Grasmus to some extent, because I thought that the book uh, coming to an end in 2011, I would take the following decade. So, but he also has addressed uh, the following decade. I, I would like to talk in the same, in the same direction that uh, Dr. Gerasimus uh, has, uh, has indicated in his, uh, in his observations. The political economy of Egyptian migration in the 2010s decades. Um, I have clearly, clearly indications of the fundamental importance of demand for labor, demand for Egyptian labor, all along. It is demand for Egyptian labor rather than supply of excess labor in Egypt that determines migration and that determines the directions that migration takes. But you also have in the 2010s all the events related to the Arab Spring and the revolution in Egypt in 2011 and its consequences for relations between Egypt and labor receiving countries, migrants receiving countries in, in the Gulf. You will see that 
migration, in fact, has not been affected in volumes in countries of destination. Even if some talk, we heard of some talk about the United Arab Emirates, for instance, that threatened with, with returning Egyptian migrants to, uh, to Egypt because of its hostility to the Muslim brothers when they came to power in 2000, the president was born Muslim brother in 2013. This in fact did not materialize. Um, demand for it, the increase in oil prices and the enlargement of oil revenues resulted in a demand that should have been met with a combination for countries in the Gulf of Egyptian migrant labor and Asian migrant labor as Gerasimus has indicated the relative weights, weights change. There are uh, very interesting in, in, in that decade, uh, a spike in remittances in 2010 and then in 2012. Uh, and then you have the agreement of Egypt with the IMF in 2016, with resulting increase in rates of poverty, uh, which also were behind a further increase in uh, in remittances from uh, from from the Gulf from the Gulf countries. But if you look at it from the political perspective, you will see that Egypt is looking for financial assistance from from Gulf countries, and therefore this will condition the foreign policy attitudes and positions of Egypt and will make it more understanding of the positions of the Gulf, the Gulf countries. Egypt received massive amounts of, of support in 2013-14. Uh, this is not alien probably to the increasing understanding of the alignment of, uh, of the Gulf cooperation countries. With the policies of Egypt in implementation of the agreement of the IMF, which reduced uh, public expenditures in order to close the deficit in the budget and in the current on current accounts, remittances acquired more and more importance in order to meet the needs of the population. Poverty having increased to over 32%, having increased by four percentage point, five percentage points in, in, in one year. So you see how I think I agree with the, with the, with Gerasimus that migration becomes a weak point, becomes an acquaintance for, for Egypt rather than, rather than an instrument of, um, of power. Uh, I think if you look 
to the west and you look uh, to Egyptian migration uh, towards the European Union, it does really represent, represent some 10% of Egyptian migration. Yet the concerns of the European Union provide Egypt to the leverage, provide Egypt with, with the card. So Egypt estimates are inflated of, of migration. And this is another leverage in the policy of, with, the, with the European Union. Uh, the, the Egypt adopts, in fact, this goes back to 2007, eight, but adopts a law of trafficking, a law of smuggling and uh, readmission agreements. With, so you have, you have all of the, of the policies that, uh, are, that, that please the, uh, the European Union and they continue in the, in the next decade. And this is important as a leverage and important for acquiring the source of external political legitimacy after the events of 2013. So you have clearly, clearly in both, in both the, uh, the major labor market for Egypt, which is the Gulf, you have a clear, uh, uh, let's say, intersection of political and economic factors, the political economy of Egyptian migration to the Gulf, and you have a political economy of Egyptian migration to, uh, to uh, the European Union. Of course, Libya is a clear example of the uh, interaction between political and, and economic. Libya was the largest market for Egyptian labor migration. You have return, uh, so you have the opportunity cost of migration, in fact, and the pressures on, on, Egyptian, on the Egyptian labor market and on the Egyptian economy. Imagine that the situation in the Egyptian labor market is difficult to the extent that the Egyptian labor force has diminished over the last four or five years from 29 million to 24 million, which means that all of the discouraged workers because of the shrinkage of the Egyptian labor market. Finally, let me say that again, I think I think that labor migration is, is as I said, an Akali seal. Certainly, it's also, it's also an instrument of power, certainly. But it's not, it's not at the moment that power that uh, one could think of in, in past decade to the extent that protection of migrant workers is timid. They have a timid protection of migrant workers in the Gulf because of the primacy of foreign policy concern, uh, for, for purposes, excuse me, because of the primacy of relations with Gulf countries politically and for, to maintain the, uh, the, 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 the flows of, of remittances in particular after uh, the, the COVID-19, for instance, where sources of foreign exchange has all but, but dried. So Egyptian migration, I think, explains to a great extent Egyptian position in the region and in the wider uh, Euro-Mediterranean neighborhood. It is a very, very fortunate, I think, um, uh, concept that was developed by the European Union. I think if we extend this uh, analysis to Jordan, for instance, that 
Dr. Nerasimus has mentioned, we'll find also the, the, the connection between political and, 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 and economic, economic factors in uh, Egyptian, in Egyptian uh, migration. Um, looking forward, I think that migration is certainly, will certainly diminish in importance in the Egyptian political economy. With the Egyptian population growing still at very high rates, with manpower growing at high rates, and with countries are, are of destination of Egyptian migration, raising uh, knowledge content, raising productivity in their processes of production and exchange, they will not, they will not, their demand cannot keep up with the rate of growth of Egyptian power and therefore, and therefore migration will remain probably as a supplement, but as an outlet for Egyptian labor force and as a solution to the chronic trade deficit of Egypt, a solution in the current account balance, I think the days of migration are, are past. Are past. Um, again, even if they continue, if, they, if migration will continue, as I repeat, as a supplement to the internal reorganization of employment and of the country's economy. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ibrahim. Um, I'm on, on time? Yes, yes. All good, all good. We have, we have plenty of time now for uh, questions and answers. And if there is anything um, you would like to further elaborate on Gerasimus, I'd be very interested in hearing. Um, before, um, so waiting for questions to arrive. Well, um, when I was um, listening to your work, um, it's uh, what made me, you know, it's, it's a fascinating piece of work because it covers such a large landscape and a very long historical process and uh, untangling this relationship between migration and politics and authoritarianism uh, in a long historical period must have been quite a, a, quite a task to undertake. Uh, so I really congratulate you for, for, uh, for the work and I'm, um, I'm very um, excited to uh, hear more about um, you know, I, I read part of your book, the, the introduction. Uh, I, I'm very interested, so I want to keep reading, even though I don't work on Egypt and the whole processes of migration really interests me. As you know, I think we were in a conference in Lebanon on the on a, uh, on on migration processes. Although you weren't talking about this particular work, as far as I remember. So, um, uh, what I wanted to ask you is the um, archival research that you have done. Um, I don't know how how was it to because the the, the geography is big and and the period is a very long period of time so how must have been difficult to kind of identify the resources decide on what to focus on what not to focus on and access issues uh, to the archives could you please talk a little bit about that I'm curious to hear about uh, that process in the writing of the book 
Sure, no, sure. Thank you, and and, and thank you for for going through the introduction as well. I um, I, I I appreciate it. I um, it it was a long process, uh, and it has to do. Uh, it goes very much to um, a Dr. Ibrahim's help as well. So I was a fellow, a research fellow at the American University of Cairo, which allowed me access to its vast uh, library, uh, and indeed, it's one of the the finest libraries in, in Egypt and probably North Africa as well. Uh, so I was quite lucky to uncover uh, the archives of their newspapers, um, Egyptian daily newspapers in the basement of that library. So I, um, I vorac voraciously read quite a bit. Uh, so out of the 11 months, I remember I was doing daily trips to New Cairo where um, the, the university is, uh, going through them in, in detail and then just noting everything down. The problem is that um, for much of our research, uh, most of the research done in Egypt sort of assumes that, well, you know, it only starts in the 70s. And this is something I never really understood because, of course, we have millions of workers living in 19, early 1970. But I was trying to uncover a bit the continuity that was happening in terms of migration before 1970. And this was really only accessible in the archives in terms of what was happening there. So um, it, it was a very interesting experience in the sense of um, being able to uncover little tidbits of information that the, the regime allowed through somehow uh, and then found its way in the national press. So information about bilateral agreements, information about um, X number of Egyptian workers being invited to move to Iraq to pursue agriculture, all sorts of little things like this, that when you pile them up, they become this like data set of hundreds and hundreds of, of pieces. But I think it, it, it really started from the, the inability to get any other uh, sort, of, sort of data, really. Um, and that got me thinking as to how I can make this as... Um, as fruitful an experience as possible being in, being in Egypt. And it had to do ultimately with, uh, with going to the archives. I was just, a uh, final thing on this, if I may say, is that I, I was desperate to find a way to sort of uh, balance the view that uh, was um, taking shape from the National Archives. So uh, the, the British National Archives, where essentially all British policymakers deposit their, um, their papers uh, and I think now goes all the way up to the 1970s, had a very specific view about, of course, Gamal Abdel Nasser, uh, the danger he posed to the British Empire that was collapsing, of course. And so I really was desperate to try to find something to balance this uh, very sort of um, uh, alarmist view of, of looking at the Middle East in the 1950s and 1960s. So I think that's where archives were, were hugely, hugely important, I think. I am muted. <laughs> There's always someone who speaks when they are muted in these events. Um, so we have <clears throat> a question from uh, one of our participants. <clears throat> I will read the question to you, Gerasimus. Um, are there particular city-to-city -city dynamics which derive some of this migration dynamic? Labor from Cairo to Amman or Alexandria to Tripoli? Um, such dyadic cities, um, the participants say ties may help or hinder your broader state or state, a broader state-to-state -state argument. What do you think? I think that's a great point, actually. Um, uh, I would I would say that there there are definitely uh, aspects of not city to city but perhaps region to region uh, migration 
So I'm thinking of Upper Egypt, for instance, where you have villages, and there's been quite fascinating research on that, specific villages going to specific parts of Italy, for instance. So the men, uh, this is a male-dominated type of migration where you have um, some migrants moving there, making it big, coming back, and then more. So essentially you have some sort of repeated phenomenon of specific villages or regions moving to specific parts of Southern Europe and back. Uh, so I see that uh, the problem uh, with trying to make it a city-to-city -city argument, um, and I think it's, it would be a brilliant argument if I could, I could do it, but I think the problem is that you're talking about vast cities. So if you look at Cairo, Cairo is, this, is the size of Greece. Uh, so, so with 10 million inhabitants or 10 million the last time I checked, it's really hard to make out specific um, migratory patterns unless you're talking about, um, for instance, non-labor migration movements such as, I would say, the migration of um, members of the Muslim Brotherhood, for instance, to places like Istanbul, for instance. One of the fascinating things that one of my PhD uh, students is doing is looking at the Egyptian diaspora, how it was created out of particular suburbs of Cairo into Istanbul after 2013. So those kinds of aspects, I think, are quite under-researched. Uh, and there's a lot of fruitful sort of types of research that, that we can uncover. I don't know if Dr. Ibrahim wants to say anything on this, because I, I know that they, um, he and Ayman Zohri, who's another brilliant scholar, I think you concluded a study on Jordan as well, Dr. Ibrahim, like Egyptian migration to Jordan. Yes, yes. Uh, there, it's difficult, as you say, to establish linkages uh, between particular cities and other cities. But for instance, northwest of Egypt, you'll find migrant workers going to Libya uh, from the Hera and, and uh, the, the other close uh, governorates. Some governorates in Upper Egypt will send migrants to Jordan. Um, <clears throat> you had in Iraq before 19, Iraq is a very interesting uh, um, situation of, again, labor migration determined essentially by, by demand because it was migration that went to Iraq to replace Iraqi soldiers on the front during the Iran, Iraq war in the 1980s when, when the, the Iraqi fighters returned to Iraq. And then of course, when, when uh, after 1990, 1991, then Egyptian workers uh, returned. And here you have also the migrants from, um, I remember that Swahak was one of the main governorates uh, where returnees uh, came to in 1991. Um, you have, as, as you said, some villages in the Delta that go for instance to Paris. Uh, they go to Paris and to work as painters. Uh, there is uh, one village very well known that it sends painters to, 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 to France. But uh, to generalize uh, that there are specific labor markets that are related to specific origin in terms of cities, I think it is difficult to establish because most Egyptian migrant workers are in fact in the Gulf and, and in Jordan, 
and they come from uh, from all over. What is interesting, in fact, is that migration in recent decades is was no longer from the countryside to the cities and from the cities to external migration, but in fact, migration directly from the countryside to uh, to destinations either in the Gulf or or in Jordan. Thank you. Uh, we have another question. Um, to the um, participant says um, there is anecdotal evidence on large concentrations of Egyptian middle class migration to Western cities, notably Milano, New Jersey, and South California. Do we have any research work on those communities, notably with respect to their remittance contribution? Do you know any work on that? So, we, th th yes, there, there is a large, uh, there is a large, um, a, a sizable community on both coasts, I think, both the western, both the western coast, coast of the United States, as well as the eastern coast. Uh, uh, a lot of this is um, a result of um, migration that started in the 70s onwards. Uh, a lot of this is also um, the members of the Egyptian Coptic community, for instance, moving to uh, the United States and Canada at this time. Uh, in terms of remittances, uh, I can't think of anything specific that we would have, and I have two reasons for this, for this absence of data. The first has to do with the fact that um, historically and currently, it is Egyptians in the, the Middle East that tend to remit the most uh, money uh, compared to anyone else. So it's, it's typically people uh, spending a few years in Libya, in Jordan, in the Gulf, uh, that uh, remit the most uh, for the Egyptian state. Uh, it is less so uh, uh, for people that, that move to Europe or to, the, um, to North America. Um, and there can be a lot of explanations for this, and I'm happy to discuss this if you want. The, the second, perhaps, reason for this, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear Dr. Ibrahim's view on this as well, has to do with how the Egyptian state approaches these communities in the United States and Canada. And my understanding of this from my interviews is that they're not really looking at the regime or the state does not really look at Egyptians in the West as potential sources of remittances as much as potential uh, actors for development. Uh, not economic development, but sort of human development, if you want to call it that. Uh, so they look at them for, um, uh, they, they target uh, br uh, brain uh, gain policies, for instance. So they're trying to make them return. So they try to uh, reach out to them, gain expertise. They try to bring them back to universities. Uh, there's all sorts of political linkages between various diaspora groups and um, uh, the Egyptian state itself. So it's less so about let's uh, use these communities in order to gain something in remittances. It's more about let's use these communities uh, because they're probably highly educated. They're well placed within the United States, Canada. Um, they're, um, they, have, they, they, they know what they're doing, so we can learn from them. Uh, so that's my understanding, and that's a long answer to why the research on West uh, Egyptians in the West in terms of their remittances is, is quite scant, I think. I don't know, do you agree, Dr. Ibrahim, uh, about this? Yes, yes, we agree, sir. I think we have, we have to distinguish between 
Egyptian migrants workers in Europe and Egyptian migrants in North America. Uh, Egyptian migrants in Europe, to a great extent, follow the same pattern of Egyptian migrant workers to Arab countries. They also are temporary migrants. They spend like six years on average and then and then return. Uh, they probably, uh, they may be a little bit higher skilled, even though Egyptian migration to the Gulf is now higher skilled, much higher skilled than it used to be in uh, the early 1980s and, 19, and the 1970s. The Egyptian migrants in North America and Canada and the United States are another story. In fact, in fact, for Egypt, the term migrant only applies to them. Even in the 1970, the famous 1971 uh, constitution, which encouraged migration, it encouraged migration in the sense of my, not as in the Gulf, uh, they are called temporary construction, construction workers. Uh, for, for Egypt, that is for Egyptian state, the, the workers going to the Gulf are, they, they leave for external employment. Whereas in the United States and Canada, these are migrants and they respond even to, as, as uh, Dr. Gerasimo said, as of the early 70s, in fact, to a great extent because of the change in migration policies in the United States and Canada. Yeah. So again, again, demand, demand. I think this goes to show that all that is said about, about supply that determines migration has really serious limitations. Um, with regard to remittances, certainly, as you very well said, remittances are not the only, the only outcomes, are not the only uh, contributions of, of migration. And theoretically speaking, the highly skilled migrants remit less than the low skilled migrants. So for, first, because their families do not need this money as much as the families of the low skilled migrant workers need this money. Second, because they are established. They are migrants and they, they are free agents in the new uh, uh, countries of migration. So, and they know what to do with their money in, 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 in countries of the, no, sorry, in countries of destination, which is contrary to the Gulf where they don't even have the opportunity to acquire, uh, to acquire um, uh, uh, goods like land or, or, or houses or so. So this is why you have less, less remittances. And again, because of the volumes, of course. The volumes are different. So most remittances to Egypt, and not only to Egypt, by the way, yeah? not only to Egypt, even to India. Yeah? They come from, uh, from the Gulf and not from, um, uh, from, uh, from North America or from Australia. I, was, I, I just want to add just two, two sentences to this, and exactly uh, Dr. Ibrahim's last point about how um, the book, of course, focuses on Egypt and looks at Egyptian communities abroad, but it's really interesting how the arguments on this sort of uh, take place and sort of can be applied to the broader global south, if you want, for a lack of better term, perhaps. So uh, Jordan is another country in which, you know, migration to the West is seen as somehow superior, somehow much more important 
that migration to the Gulf. India, for instance, is the same. So it has two, a two-tiered system in terms of Indian um, citizens being in the United States and Canada and Indians working in the UAE or Saudi Arabia. So there's, there's something there that we haven't really like, touched upon in the, in the literature, I think, about the sort of tiering of migrants according to some sort of calculation from the sending state that I think is, is, is fascinating. So there has to be more examples than this, but I, I completely agree. Thank you, Gerasmus. I, I have a question, if you don't mind. Uh, so this relationship between authoritarianism and immigration and migration, um, um, in, in, the, in the migration uh, studies, we don't see this explicit direct con connection to the political context especially within an authoritarian context in the in the in the scholarship and i think your work is uh, extremely valuable for for opening you know uh, and doing this extensive uh, research uh, that kind of helps us illuminate uh, helps us understand that, that the relationship so in addition to i guess how um, immigration affects how the regime, an authoritarian regime, tries to establish its position or use this for its own purposes, or how uh, the question of, I guess, um, uh, how you know the different types of authoritarian states might probably have different kind of ways of using migration immigration policies. Um, so I was one. I wanted to basically ask a bit more of a, you know, what is next? Like, you know, how where what type of theoretically what type of implications can we derive from this you know what do you think if you were to write another book for instance you know to explore this this very interesting theoretical discussion and i think which is a great contribution to both migration studies and political science um what what would that be you know um what type of questions i think do you think we should explore more um, that's, that's a brilliant and, and and quite tough quite tough question like Zainab. no thank you I would say this goes down to the, 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 the scholarly field, right? So what I try to do is look at both the literature on authoritarianism and the literature on migration. And the argument is that I, I made is that there is a, a double gap. Uh, so scholars of authoritarianism have produced some, some wonderful works uh, over the last few decades, but they tend to be comparative political scientists, which means that by default they look at processes within the state. And migration uh, by, by default also sort of tends to transcend boundaries, right? So international migration was never part of authoritarian, um, authoritarianism literature for quite a few years. It is only now, lately, in the past couple of years, that scholars have tried to make the link between um, migrants, refugees, diasporas, and contesting or consolidating authoritarian regimes. And the, of course, on the other side of this, if, if I try to talk to migration scholars, there was a bit of a backlash there because migration studies tends to focus, and Dr. Ibrahim knows this better than I do, by default on countries of immigration. So the famous scholars of migration tend to look at things like citizenship, integration, uh, sort of um, specific policies of Western Europe, North America, they don't tend to look at uh, global south emigration states with a few notable exceptions, of course. So those, so hopefully what the book can to do is get a conversation going on how to combine these two fields and, 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 and move forward. So I would say 
in terms of um, future steps, or, or if I had to do this again, right? So if I had to do this, this book again, one of the things that I would have um, loved to do uh, would be to do a multi-sided um, fieldwork um, uh, process. So my, my book looks at uh, Egyptian migration to the West and to the Middle East, of course, but relies on fieldwork drawn out of Cairo primarily. Um, if I had a wish list of, of unlimited funding, it would probably be, um, let's find some funds and do some work in Jordan, Saudi Arabia, the UAE. So what I encourage my students to do when they're, they're, they're thinking about a PhD project on migration is to not be bound territorially uh, in a single state because migration by default transcends this. So the best kinds of projects that I see lately, and I, I'm envious of them in, in a very, in a nice way, uh, are the ones that sort of follow migrants or refugees along different sites from their country of origin to a transit state and to finally a country of destination. And of course, this, these terms kind of fall apart if you look at them too, 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 um, too closely, but this is, this is how I would, I would like to proceed perhaps. Thank you very much. Um, may, I, may, I, may I get into this discussion? Sure. <clears throat> I think it would be interesting, Erasmus, to have a control country that is not authoritarian. Uh, and then you can also have a comparison over time and over regions. That Migration policy preserved Franco's regime and Salazar's regime in, 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 in Spain and Portugal. These are authoritarian regimes where that their migration policies preserve the regimes. Now, what is common and what is different between migration policies under Salazar, not under Nasser? Nasser, there is an ideological. Uh, uh, element, but under Sadat and Mubarak, what is common and what is different from the Philippines policy? What is common? What is different? I think this would reinforce theoretically. In fact, the migration policy is much more structured in, in, in the Philippines, much, much more structured. And yet, with the Philippines, at least since 1986 is not an authoritarian, unless, of course, we make a case that this is an authoritarian uh, country. What is different between India's labor migration policy and Egypt's labor migration policy under Salad? So I think this would help us to a great extent uh, understand uh, what, uh, because you also have differences between and I think we discussed that before between, let's say, Morocco's migration policy and, and Egypt. So, but I think this is very interesting, a very, very interesting, uh, very interesting subject. Thank you, Brian. Um, we have one more question from one of our participants. Um, so what is, um, the question is, what is hindering creation of higher economic value, adding saving and investment schemes? for Egyptian migrants, like diaspora bonds, for example, in India, Ethiopia, or Israel? That's, uh, that's, a, that's a great question, actually. And it's, um, uh, it hints at the counterintuitive nature of this as well, in the sense that 
such diaspora schemes have been espoused by, by institutions like the IOM and others uh, and have been proliferating across the world. So Alan Gamlin has a wonderful book that just came out on this. Uh, so Egypt is a bit of an outlier here. My, my, my understanding of this has to do what Dr. Inza said in his last point about the authoritarian nature of this or the political aspect of migration. So one explanation would be that um, Egyptian migrant and diaspora groups in Europe and the US and Canada might be a bit more loath to contribute to a diaspora uh, bond scheme that, that helps um, strengthen the Egyptian regime if uh, the reason they emigrated in the first place has to do with a degree of political disagreement with the regime of Anwar Sadat or Hosni Mubarak. So I'm thinking of um, the Coptic community, for instance, and the extent to which the Coptic diaspora would participate in such a scheme. The other explanation that I have would be that uh, it has to do with the institutional priorities of the Egyptian state. And I think some things have happened, do, did take place in the 1970s and early 1980s. Um, I think even Boutros Boutros Valley was involved in, in parts of this at, at the time. And then it was only in the last year or two that um, the Egyptian diaspora and the potential of the Egyptian diaspora, quote unquote, uh, came back to life. So we might have to wait a bit. Uh, but my immediate thought has to do with the degree to which there might be some uh, hesitation from the point of view of um, the Egypt Egyptian communities abroad that is not shared by, for instance, you know, um, Indian communities abroad or um, Greek communities abroad or what have you. So I think that that might be the reason for this. I, I don't know, Dr. Ibrahim, what, what do you think about that? Well, I think recently in the last few years, there is no scheme yeah. for deposits by Egyptians living abroad with higher interest rates than on, on the to attract savings of um, Egyptians. I think to a great extent, policy, Egyptian policy was a least fair policy. In fact, most Egyptian migrant workers live on their own. They find contracts for themselves and they solve the problems for themselves. I would love to, make, to look, for instance, at what, uh, what is the expenditure, public expenditures uh, on migration compared to the revenues of migration uh, almost nothing. Almost nothing. So, in fact, migration policy is very weak. The uh, institutions of migration uh, are weak, and therefore the policies also are weak. Add to that that in order for you to attract savings, you need to have macroeconomic stability, and you need to have clear economic policies. You need to have confidence in the performance of the economy. Otherwise, people will not, uh, will not uh, remit $1,000 today for them to be $500 in six months. So you need to have, and you need to also have 
uh, avenues, channels for investment. So you need a whole set of policies, which, which unfortunately do not exist. There are something, all countries have policies, by the way. No country does not have a policy. But to which extent is this policy diversified? To which extent is it implemented effectively? And to which extent it is, is it successful? This, I think, is the issue. And I don't think that, I think that had Egypt been more successful in formulating policies, the remittances and the skills acquired by migrants would be better, better used. Thank you. Thank you, Ibrahim. Um, I, there are, um, I think we are kind of slowly approaching to the end of our session. Um, there are no other questions, but I would like to um, ask um, Erasmus and Ibrahim to share any uh, comments, any you know, final thoughts um, with us before we conclude. I, I would say, thank you. I, I would very briefly say um, one of the next frontiers in all of this is sort of perhaps um, looking at the division between labor and forced migration a bit more critically uh, and trying to see the extent to which mobility in general has political repercussions. I was, I was thinking of this while Dr. Ibrahim was saying, I was talking about the relationship between Egypt and the European Union, for instance, and the political dynamics there that involve not only Egyptian migrants, but also um, refugees and the management of forced migration in Egypt as a security incentive for the Europeans to come in uh, and sort of um, affect things politically a bit in Egypt as well. So I think one of the things that got me thinking out of this session, and I thank you both for, for and, and the audience for the contribution, has to do uh, with the extent to which we have to think of mobility a bit more broadly um, beyond labor migration per se to include things like diaspora politics and also forced migration to the extent uh, possible. Thank you. Well, well I think to, to, to add a few words, I think that migration policies are being formulated and implemented by countries of origin or separately from countries of destination. I would love to see migrant policies discussed, negotiated, and then being adopted in a complementary way and implemented in a complementary way. I don't think that you can have effective migrant policies if one party to the process is a policy taker of time. I think you need to have negotiated policies. For instance, the European Union formulates its policies and expects its, its partners to implement uh, the policies. I think these policies should be discussed and negotiated and this will ensure more effectiveness. And the same applies to migration towards the Gulf country. It would be, of course, need enough power. Power was, was, the idea was given that Egypt is the power. When it comes to the power is, is, is really where, where demand is. So, so hopefully, I think we should, in order to, 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 to get the best out of migration, to have migration um, exchanges or flows contribute as much to the destination 
has to origin and to the Vikings themselves, I think we, 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 we need to have negotiated, negotiated policies. Thank you, Brian. I mean, it was, it's such a fascinating and broad subject and mi migration itself is a very uh, multifaceted, multidimensional process. So, um, you know, like you said, you're asking us about forced migration, especially in the current political context in the Middle East um, since, uh, since, you know, for the last decade um, and the number of forced migrants the humanitarian response, uh, the international development, you know, global, you know, development projects and humanitarian responses in the global south, led by countries like Saudi Arabia's and, um, you know, uh, other countries' um, funding and activities in that field in, in response to forced migration. But these must must be complicating the processes even even further. It would be, you know, interesting to look into that. We, come, we came to the end of our time anyway, so it's, we have about five minutes left. So I think I would suggest wrapping up um, the meeting. Um, yeah, and uh, thank you so much, Gerasimus, for your fascinating talk uh, and sharing, us, sharing with us your book. And Ibrahim, thank you so much for your valuable comments.